Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show, episode 101. Who'd have thought it? We forgot to mention it was our centenary last week, but uh, 101, there you go. Happy anniversary, John. Yeah, actually the next episode will be our two-year anniversary of the podcast, which is extraordinary, really, if time flies. Is there going to be some ceremonial beer tasting? Or yeah, that sounds, good. that sounds good. Anyway, I'm John Hume, editor of the Investors Chronicle. And as you heard, Ian Smith is with me today. Company's editor, how are you doing, Ian? Not too bad. How are you doing, John? All right? I'm all right, yeah. And uh, Simon Thompson, a rare treat for us today. Simon Thompson is here. How are you, Simon? I'm very well, John. Good. Well, you're not that well, are you? Well, I've, I've, got, got, I've, got, I've got a dodgy wrist and a dodgy arm, but apart from that, I'm great. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a dodgy knee last time, I think, that... Uh, it prevented you from coming to visit us again. It was, it was a dodgy ankle, actually. Oh, dodgy ankle. Right. I'm, I'm falling to bits. You are? Well... It's, it's all this writing, John. All this writing, indeed. Or all this sitting at home, non-commuting, <laughs> uh, and writing. But uh, Swimming in the sea, wasn't it? Um, the, it, well, it was, the ankle. It was on holiday. It was, uh, it was my attempt to actually get fit. It lasted two days. <laughs> and it ended up in crutches. <laughs> cliff, oh, cliff diving? Or? <laughs> Swimming. No, don't, don't, don't worry anyway, Simon. We, we'll be sending you a chair shortly to, to help you with your recuperation. Just as we've installed a new standing desk for Algae, whose back has gone. Uh, yes, we are falling to bits here at the IC. But we soldier on. We soldier on. So we're going to talk with Simon in a minute about currency, I think was what we decided we were going to focus on today. It's a very interesting topic at the moment, especially what's um, what's happened to sterling in the last two weeks, in the last three, four days. And uh, I, I think a lot of investors will be thinking, mm, can we actually make some money from this? Yeah, and it's something you've been flagging for, for some time, as, uh, certainly as a potential outcome of, of the referendum and how, how investors actually respond to that. It's something we've actually put on the cover as well. Yeah, we, we've, been, we've been on top of this, I would say. Uh, I d- definitely. I mean, post post-Brexit, the EU referendum, I, I published a Brexit winner's piece saying that the money to be made was from the currency markets and um, selected a handful of companies that you should actually follow, one of which was called Arm, um, which has done rather well. If you, uh, bit, out, bit out of your usual size range. I've got a good uh, aspect on all the stock market, John. Absolutely. Of course you have. <laughs> of course you have. Anyway, we'll come back to that in a minute. It is a very, very important topic. But let's start with the news. Um, and you're st- stepping in here for, for Bradley this week, uh, Ian. Sure He's am. usually our go-to man for the, for the week's big news. Let's, let's kick off with seven days. Yeah, so seven days. You've just touched on one of the main things in the week, uh, the fall in the pound. Mm. You've actually touched on it in your editorial this week. Did I? I forgot. The, <laughs> well, I'll remind you. The, the tone coming out of the Conservative conference seeming towards a hard Brexit rather than a soft Brexit. Yeah. Um, and that was definitely felt in the money currency markets. Uh, and then also we've had, importantly this week, an OPEC agreement, which has led to a high in the oil price. And a combination of the two has driven the FTSE towards uh, record levels or record intraday levels. Yeah, because it wasn't that long ago that the oil price was starting to uh, t- to slip back quite sharply again, having, having staged a bit of a recovery this year. Uh, but now it's back up. Yeah, exactly right. And there's a good analysis piece actually on the deal that was on the deal that was struck in Algiers um, by Alex Newman, our commodities writer. It's really interesting. Obviously, it's been very well felt in the markets. It's a big thing, but there are a lot of questions relating to it. So, OPEC and the the countries therein have um, agreed to bring the rebalancing forward in the stock market. So, to try and stabilise. Uh, the, the market so move away from this policy that they've had of trying to keep the oil price low uh, to keep market share um, against the US shale producers mm-hmm. so it seems to be some retrenchment from that strategy and it's pushed Brent crude back up to $52 as we went in to do the podcast and why that's very important for our investors obviously there are a lot of sto- uh, stocks related to the oil price but also it's crucial for the dividend of the major oil producers so BP have said that 
between about 50 to $55 a barrel, they can maintain cash flows that can support dividends. Um, and when we were b- below that for a long time, obviously people were raising questions about the sustainability of the dividends of BP and Shell, which we know a lot of our readers um, rely on. So it's interesting if this can be maintained, but there's a lot of questions around it. What will Russia do? It's not part of this set. What's going to happen in terms of Iran's production? Um, can that be restrained or will they stay as an exemption? Obviously, a higher oil price will, following on from what I said before, benefit the US shale producers. So there are a lot of moving parts to this. So what we have is a good agreement in principle that the market seems to be responding to, but there are still a lot of risks. And I think they meet again in November, uh, where we hope to see actually some progress um, in terms of Well, we have some of the numbers here, but in terms of how the other oil producing nations can be brought in line with this. Another interesting thing, if I could just add, is that back in February when this UK stock market, global stock markets were taking a tumble, one of the reasons was the default risk for energy companies. $26 a barrel, Brent crude, West Texas Intermediate. At $52 a barrel, $55 a barrel thereafter, the credit default um, swaps on these um, the insurance policies basically against these energy companies going bust, they'll tumble. And that's actually good for the US banking system as well because lots of those big Wall Street banks have got big liabilities on these shell producers. And, and we saw the impairments that they had generally for the oil industry, which really hit some of the major international banks. But yeah, interesting with regards to shell too. It's just positive for sentiment, basically. Mm, well, I mean, sentiment, how can it be more positive? I mean, the FTSE 100 this week obviously rocketed through uh, 7,000 points. Uh, FTSE 250 was up as well. And a lot of this has been put down to the uh, responses, essentially, to, to what's happened to Sterling, particularly with the FTSE 100. But it's more difficult to say straight away what's going on with the 250, as you wrote about yeah, again I, I, in your editorial. Still don't, I don't get it. Well, maybe, I mean, it's just, maybe it's just improved sentiment. Is uh, And there were a lot of FTSE 250 based oil producers. Exactly. We, and we've seen a lot of falls in those stocks. And then also the interest rate decision following uh, the referendum has further supported house builders um, as well. So there's a few different things going on in the market. I'd be interested in Simon's view. Well, actually, the small caps as well, they're, they're at a record high. And yeah, I agree with John. One of the reasons for that is the currency effects, um, obviously exporting and um, they're generally domestic manufacturers, so they can actually export at better profits. We don't make terms. anything. We don't make anything. Uh, well, actually, the interesting point is um, I was looking at the manufacturing data. So if you go back to ERM 92, and we had a massive um, fall in sterling when we actually left the exchange rate mechanism. Our manufacturing base at the moment is about 60% of that level. Mm. So it's less, but we've got lots of companies with overseas operations as well. So it's not just the UK domestic manufacturing base. It's actually some of these companies are global companies. And even some of the minnows, lots of the minnows I follow have got manufacturing bases overseas as well. Mm. So um, there's ways of actually playing this that actually benefits the sterling value of those earnings from overseas. Yeah, and the soft exports as well. It's interesting in the purchase, uh, the PMI index for the for the uh, manufacturing sector actually hit 55.4 in September, anything above 50 being expansion. So significant that was, expansion. Yeah, but that's a, yeah, so. that exceeded expectations and was significant for the reasons I think that you're giving. So, so I mean, the currency, the weak currency is working. I mean, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, when currency, when the, when sterling started to plunge in the, in the wake of the referendum, I think a lot of people were saying, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but we don't make anything. But, but we do. It, uh, it works for some, but obviously it hurts a company that is buying in dollars, any of the retailers that have to get the goods in dollars as we spoken about before. Yeah, retailers trouble me still. Yeah. The, the food um, retailers trouble me a lot, to yeah. be honest. Um, 
Given, given what you've actually seen with the euro rate and the dollar rates, and given Aldi and little expansion in the UK, I really would not want to be holding a food retailer at the moment. Yeah, but, but I mean, that said, that said, we do import, as I understand it, around sixty percent of of our foodstuffs. But actually, the the, re- the food retailers have had a pretty good week, and you know, led by Tesco. Yeah, Tesco had its results this week. That, you could say that's a lot of the operational changes that Dave Lewis has made that perhaps aren't relating to. The currency changes, but it's obviously difficult to say exactly what's coming from the light for light sales. But we have seen those um, comparable sales increase for another quarter, and the Tesco share price rocketed as a result of this. Um, and people are saying, well, the recovery is now working. At they've done some work around simplifying the product range, and also they've done some work in terms of their online grocery sales to increase the margins there by um, just changing the rules around orders and the pricing that you have to, uh, how much you have to pay to get an online order. So they've done some things operationally to improve things. The like for like sales have started to improve but there were worries in there as well i think tesco is priced quite strongly for a recovery which now we do seem to be seeing some of the signs of but there are problems the pension deficit obviously is quite large which i think they said was an accounting issue a timing issue nothing to worry about nothing to see here but we're not entirely convinced by that no i mean as all things with with pensions there's a lag effect here so at the moment their accounting deficit might be higher but what's important is the triennial valuation that they'll do um, based on 2007 numbers which we'll find out about in 2018 so if interest rates stay low and the deficit stays large then the employer contributions that will be renegotiated at at that point should be higher and that that obviously puts under threat the the, the likelihood that it returns to the dividend list. Yeah, that, that is definitely a risk there. And I would also say some of the changes they're making to improve margins at the expense of sales when it comes to the online grocery retail is a bit concerning when you think about the challenge they're facing from Amazon entering the market and a lot of these things that we've talked about. Do we, now, really, do we really buy that Amazon could become a serious player in food retail? Though? I think without a doubt it could become... If you look at the way that online retail in general is going, people are moving towards using one provider for lots of different areas. Say, I might want to buy my food shopping, but I also might want to get some household goods. We saw with um, Sainsbury's buying home retail, they're trying to very much get ahead of this trend. So could Amazon, who already has established relationship with consumers when it comes to certain household goods, add on uh, grocery retail successfully as it started to do in the US? I think definitely it could become a player there. It's, it's cutthroat, though. I mean, you've seen Ocado in Britain, and um, we, we don't buy from Ocado anymore. Um, the delivery charge is too high. We're not willing to actually pay for a year's delivery in advance. Um, the prices are no better than Waitrose, and Waitrose will actually deliver for free if you order enough from them. But frankly, we order from everyone. Um, we'll order from Asda, Tesco, Sainsbury's, whoever's got the lowest price. So in terms of customer loyalty from the Thompson household, it's more or less non-existent. I can't imagine, Simon, you venturing into an Aldi or a Lidl, though. Uh, no, 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 it's all, all online. <laughs> but if you extend the... Uh, extend the oh, no, 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 I did. Sorry, sorry, I did. We did a charity bash in January, and I, I went to a Lidl for my first time. How was it? It was a great experience. There's one in Ramsgate, and they they sell these ginormous croissants. It's a breakfast stew we were doing, and they to give you some idea, they were the. I've best. never heard you so excited. Right? <laughs> they, they, they were the be- they were the best pan au chocolat croissants that you could possibly get for half the price of Sainsbury's or Marks and Spencer's, better quality too, and we actually came out there feeling good for ourselves, supplying all this 
food for a charity bash and actually going to Lidl as well. With You're a, a wonderful hu- man, Simon. With a, huge, <laughs> with a huge croissant in hand. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, obviously stressing personal experience can be misleading, right? Applying that to the uh, country. But I would say I've started using Ocado. And one of the things to, to kind of support my point was, um, or maybe just where I'm coming from, is that in addition to having a, a normal kind of grocery retail uh, part, they also have a, a pets retail part oh. that will deliver be God, delivered. Here we go. Here we go. It'll, be, it'll be delivered, but it's been delivered by the same group. So, um, on that point of, do you want things delivered by one provider? I think if Amazon can, you know, tack on food successfully to what they already do, that could be powerful. Mm. Uh, but the other kind of challenge that Simon talked about uh, earlier, which is ongoing, is the challenge from the from the discounters, which is still a massive challenge in terms of, you know, store, store sales. We talked, uh, about this, we, we talked about this last week because, yeah. uh, you know, great, well, Graham was here. Uh, yeah, big, big, uh, I can't remember if it was an Aldi or a Lidl was open near here, but we've got a couple opening there. I, I think the discounted challenge is, is huge. And, and actually what makes me look at this renewed optimism about Tesco's prospects with some scepticism is that they're talking about a, a kind of a level of margins that they're looking to, to achieve, which, which in the face of this competition, I'm just... I just don't see how they're going to get there. And I think that's just, if I just may add something here, it's actually really interesting when you see the people that are making the recovery argument. On a price-to-earnings basis, it's very hard to make an argument of any kind of value because it's so high. So some people are using enterprise value to sales, which is which is fine too. But other people are saying you should use that because the enterprise value to EBITDA is, is more misleading because we have that this short-term earning suppression. So I would be careful if I was you know, a reader looking at Tesco as to just how I'm valuing that and the assumptions that that is putting in in terms of the margin growth, as you say, John. I just don't think you can value it properly at the moment. I, you know, I, I kind of concur with Simon that you look at supermarkets and think, mm, I, I don't think I'd want to be here. And that's kind of what we concluded in the piece we did with Sharepad uh, last week. Um, that they look expensive. I mean, I may, may regret saying this, but if Tesco's actually increased their margins from two percent to three and a half to four percent margin target, I will literally eat my hat. I don't think it's going to happen. Really? Can Absolutely. you do that live on the podcast? If it happens. Well, I'll, I'll ask, ask me in twelve months' time. <laughs> like Gary Lineker, you'll do the podcast in your underpants. No, no, they were shorts. Won't go, won't they go were, that far. They were holding a giant cross anyway. on. They were shorts. Like Gary Lineker bowled that. <laughs> they were shorts. They were shorts. <laughs> Uh, okay, right, that's enough about Tesco. Uh, Capita is the other interesting story in the news this week, um, I mean, it's, which, in fact, is the subject of next week's um, sharepad work we're going to be doing, looking at the outsourcers and how they make their money. Um, but, but Capita beat us to it by having a massive profit warning. It's really interesting. If you look at Capita's organic revenue growth over the past 10 years, it's actually quite inconsistent. And what they've managed to supplant that with acquisitions that's been good, but obviously it's led to a lot of goodwill and quite a high leverage. Um, so some people at the moment are struggling with capita to see exactly you know, the value of the company. Yes, it remains cash generative and that's positive for it in the near term. But it has made a lot of these acquisitions, so it's quite hard to see whether they'll have a lot more of these one-off charges. Now, the problems they're having at the moment relate to um, the contracts that they've taken on, which is obviously something that uh, people that invest in these kinds of companies will be familiar with. They were installing an IT system for TFL. Um, They've had had delays to that project. They've had some slightly more worrying problems with their um, technology resale and their specialist recruitment uh, in the workplace services division. So... There's some areas that the slowdown's a bit more worrying and some of it has been related to 
uncertainty surrounding the EU referendum. There have been other one-offs, which you might say are par for the course with this kind of company, but it doesn't give great confidence to investors when they're looking at that order book. Yeah, I mean, so Mighty has also had problems recently. Um, I'm not sure exactly of what nature those problems were, but I have always looked at outsourcers with a degree of scepticism. Obviously, Serco is the other big outsourcer, um, which ran into trouble a little while back. It was more issues around uh, specific contracts and, and actually how they were being accounted for, and, and there was some very dubious activity going on there. But I've, I've, I've never really got my head around outsourcing as a principle, I find it hard to understand how you can take something that a government is doing or a company and give it to someone else and they can do it um, for a lower price. I, they would argue that they can they can consolidate and, and, and deliver this more cheaply through scale. Um, I actually don't believe that. I think you know every every situation is is somewhat different. The only way I can imagine an outsourcer can actually deliver a contract more cheaply, deliver a service more cheaply, is by degrading the level of service. And obviously the, the, the government or whoever it is that's employing them doesn't want that. So I, I've always struggled with this kind of business. Don't get it. I've struggled with the margins, which is one of the reasons why these companies have a propensity to actually warn. Um, that but capital is supposed to be, it was always one uh, of the, it was described as you know, a, a very reliable, boring company. Well, well, it was. I remember back in 2000, 2001, and it was a FTSE 100 company, and it had a massive order book. Every time you picked up the results, it'd be X billion pound order book. It's got visibility for years to come. But the problem is, if the margins on those contracts are not what they should have been, you, you're saying that one of the reasons you've got a problem with outsourcing is the quality of the service being provided. Yeah. Well, if you're actually doing it for a margin that's actually less than it should be, and you actually screw up that contract, it has an almighty effect on your profits. You've got one, you know, you've underpriced the deal. Yeah. Presumably, a lot of these deals, I would imagine, are fixed price contracts, because otherwise there's no point actually outsourcing this work. And then you've underestimated how much it costs to deliver it, and bang, there goes your profits. Well, it goes back to the old um, Ben Graham effect from my bargain shares. It's the margin of safety. You need a margin of safety on the contract price that you're actually offering. And what I'd contend is some of these companies don't have the margin of safety. They're actually cutting the price to the bone. I would, I would completely agree. That is, that is exactly my view of outsourcing, which is why I personally would never own them. I don't like them. I don't like the principle. But I mean, there you go. And we're having these fairly large impairments from the businesses they have bought too, as well as the contracts that they have. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very unpredictable. There you go. Damning you <laughs> on outsourcers. Why bother reading next week's magazine? <laughs> I, I mean, on the other side... <laughs> On the other side of things, you know, the, the, the cash conversion has um, stayed, remained strong. So you could say the basic business model has continued to work. But obviously, the market doesn't believe that. Otherwise, the shares wouldn't have been marked down so heavily on this latest news. I mean, it was, it was huge, the, yeah. the, the share price fall. It was, it was it surprisingly was roughly, low. 30%? 30%? I mean, that is a massive, massive hit. And I really don't, I, 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 you know, I'm sure they did. In fact, you say they did blame the referendum, but this is more than that. Has to be more than that. No, definitely. Anyway, there you go. Um, should we talk about Henderson, which I know is a company that you've covered uh, previously, um, which will not be a member of the London Stock Exchange for much longer? No, it's merging with uh, Janus Capital, um, which people might have heard of when Bill Gross, uh, the bond uh, fund manager, left PIMCO to go there. And a lot of people in the UK hadn't heard of it at that point. Uh, it's a reasonably large uh, US manager. Um, and it's merging with those and it's going to take a uh, apply to take a New York listing, retain a place on the Australian market too, but no longer in London. So it's going to be an all share merger. So shareholders in Henderson in total will own 57% of Janus Henderson. 
the reason why it's good for the company, I suppose, is because it gives it more of a equal geographic spread. Hmm. Um, Henderson, in recent times, has been really hit by uh, the flight from European equities, um, from retail investors. Um, it had £2 billion pounds worth of net outflows in the six months uh, to June 2016, which was its worst uh, such period since 2011. So if you look at the geographic split, and we've actually got a graph to that effect in the in the MAG, you'll see that it's more equally spread across the Americas, because Jane is, is American, uh, and EMEA and Pan-Asia, which is an area where, especially Australia, where Henderson has been uh, trying to grow. Um, so that makes sense. And a lot of people have made much of the scale within asset management, consolidation. I mean, consolidation has always been there within asset management. That's, you know, a bigger asset manager. It's, it's a very scalable business, so it makes perfect sense. But there's also going on in asset management at the moment um, as readers will know this big trend towards passive investment mm. which is a big squeeze on active managers the kind of uh, money they can charge investors um, so uh, one of the ideas is to protect yourself you should consolidate try and get big enough um, you, this combined group gets nowhere near the size of some of the big passive uh, and, and the major houses and the Black Rocks um, and, the, and the legal and general investment managements of this world but it, it allows them to get to a certain level of scale where the basic management fees will start to be provided quite a decent return for the company and they won't have to rely on the performance fees and the other elements. So essentially it means that they can cheapen their offering to, to investors? Yeah, it, well, yeah, it provides... And, that's, the, and, and that, that's what they need to do to compete with the likes of BlackRock, which are huge and global. Yeah, and it allows them to re- reduce their costs. You know, the synergies is something you can talk about with fund managers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I presume, I mean, given, given that, as you say, this doesn't really take them up to the scale of a BlackRock, I mean, we can expect significantly more consolidation activity in this sector in the years ahead. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at um, BlackRock, the world's largest fund manager, the way that BlackRock grew so uh, large was through organic growth, growth, yes, but also it grew quite strongly through acquisition. So it took over the old Barclays asset management business, Barclays Global Investors, and I think the Merrill Lynch asset management business as well in, in the in the 2000s. So it, it grew massively via acquisition. So it really is the way to progress if you can do the deals. Yeah, uh, Black, Black Rider, I mean, it sort of almost feel like the Amazon of the uh, the investment world. Well, in what way? Big. Yeah. Eating everybody's lunch. Yeah. Forcing everyone to respond, say Sainsbury's home home retail type response. They're the ones driving this market. Really. Yeah, and they really got... I wonder what Barclays thinks maybe it should have held on to that business. Um, but yeah, no, it's, 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 done, it's done incredibly well. I suppose the question for readers of the IC that invest in this is, do they want to be shareholders in... Um, a fund manager that's based in the US with a uh, you know another listing in Australia that's not in London will that kind of make it more problematic? But maybe it Why won't not? really matter to them. Get some dollar-based dividends. In terms of buying into the stock, now it's going to be an asset manager that's going to be even more correlated with the kind of MSCI world, right? Because of the uh, because of this fair geographic spread. So you've got to say, what's the, if I'm just basically buying the market in terms of a very globally diversified fund manager? Is that worth it financially as opposed to just buying an ETF or something mm. like that? No, it's, it is, is, is there a valuation argument as well in terms of some of the ratings in overseas markets, especially in the States, um, are that bit higher than domestically? Um, always been the case, though. It always has been. So you, you look at the peak valuations for the S&P 500, it's always, you know, three, four, five points more than the FTSE 100. Um or has been in the past. I know the FTSE is trading roughly about 19 times earnings at the moment, which is, you know, high historically. Pretty punchy. Um, yeah. But, you know, the S&P 500 has always been way above that at any market peak. So 
sorry, my point is that maybe investors holding on to the paper will actually benefit from a higher rating for their Henderson paper, in effect. I think yeah. I think they probably will. And, if, you know, if, if you are uh, uh, a shareholder in a US company, I mean, we have some problems with European dividends and, and withholding tax, but it's much easier to, to manage that process with US companies. Like, you know, and they're not that much more expensive to, to trade. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't see why you wouldn't. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, actually, on that point of uh, markets being quite highly valued at the moment, that Bill Gross that I mentioned before has um, labelled the markets a Vegas casino at the moment, saying that kind of easy central bank money has keeping asset prices really highly inflated. And he's even telling people to, to, to buy gold, which we've talked about before. Well, or gold even had, to go, gold's had a shocking week. Well, gold's gold, absolutely plunged yeah, this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, biggest falls for a long, long time. And another reason for the falls could be the strength of the dollar. Yes, well, absolutely. Inversely correlated. Correct. Um, and these uh, and the, these kind of strong markets that we've seen in, in London have led to, um, unsurprisingly, floats uh, and intentions to float coming out quite strongly for a few companies. Some of them with private equity backers that have leveraged them up to the hill and now <laughs> looking to uh, land that on the market. Oh, that sounds money. tempting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, quality warning. Oh, yeah. Um, it, no, it's really interesting. So, obviously... Um, TI Fluid Systems this week, uh, which makes brake lines and other things in the driveline, um, it plans to raise um, about 600 million euros via public offer to pay down debt. Then we've got uh, Convertec, uh, which makes uh, kind of wound dressings and other post-surgery care. You've missed out the colostomy bags. I did actually. Just quite deliberately, I suspect, <laughs> yeah, but I, I've lowered the tone. I skipped over the colostomy bag, is it? Uh, so to speak. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, we've had, um, after we went to press, um, Mysis, a software company that delisted in 2012, yeah, looks to be coming back to the market. That's a, uh, quite a big company. That's a blast from the past. It is. I, I thought we'd seen the end of I it. I thought we'd seen the end of it. I was quite relieved when we'd seen the end of it the last time. What's so it make, do? What's it, it do now? makes software for banks and fund managers. So really? it kind of serves the, the middle and back office. Yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of a... It had two divisions, didn't it? It was banking software on the one side, but also healthcare software on the other. I think the healthcare side was always problematic. That's gone now, I assume. Well, I, I'm actually coming to this company for the first time, but I didn't actually see that. But I, I thought it was just the banking software now. No, they might have got rid of it because it was always a, a bit of a problem child for them. It was trying to sell into America where there were all sorts of uh, issues with the, the kind of rejigging of their, their healthcare system. You know, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, blah, blah, blah. I lose track. There's a bit of bad news that Krispy Kreme might not be coming to market anymore, which That's I know some people have been looking forward to. Um, I was going to list in London. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was, it was planning to get a London listing. But now, um, yeah, I think the parent company is actually American and they're looking to maybe take it back in-house. But that's just news reports, so um, that might not prove to be the case. Oh, Biffa. Uh, waste management. Waste management is a good business to be in. Yeah. Trust me, I know. I've been clearing out my uh, father-in-law's house recently and that is that is one hell of a business to be in. <laughs> waste management. We had a recent waste management analysis by Mark we, Robinson. We did, yeah. No, it's, it's done well. I think we, he tipped uh, Veolia Services was the tip of the year. It was a French company. It did extremely well. Mm. Big business, that. All right. Shall we talk currency, Simon? That'd be great, John. Would it be great? <laughs> it is It'd great. really be great. <laughs> it is great, John. Let's talk currency. Right. So, as you said... A lot of uh, your recent thinking has been around uh, the impact of currency on some of the uh, recommendations you've been making. I had a little chat earlier, and you know, you, you, you kind of a couple haven't worked. A couple of your recent investments haven't worked because the currency effect has gone against them. But actually, a lot of ones that you'd 
you'd kind of noted where, where currency may have an impact and, 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 and led you to recommend buying them have done very well indeed. That, that's certainly the case. There's... Um Writing a few articles this week, and uh, there's a couple of companies. One's an engineer called TriFast. They do fastenings, um, industrial engineer. Yeah, it's, it, it, uh, this has been around for a long, long time. It's one of those boring companies. It's, it's so boring, but it's so great. I included it in my bargain share portfolio back in uh, 2013, and the share price is up 220%. It's now rated on about 16, 17 times earnings, which ordinarily is punchy for that type of business. Mm. However, the, the company... It's very conservative with its guidance and always seems to over-deliver. And now it's got this great currency tailwind behind it because it's um, it's bought businesses over in um, Europe and Italy. It services or supplies into the automotive industry as well. It's been able to pass on some of the higher input costs. We talked about this earlier when you're actually importing goods into the UK to a manufacturing base in the UK and then actually supplying OEMs that are actually then exporting out of the UK. It's been actually able to pass on those higher input costs to the OEMs. And given the new contracts it's actually signing now, it's going to benefit from quite a significant currency benefit on those those, those contracts. And it manufactures a lot of its, uh, its it, products in the UK? It's manu- well, it's, it's got bases over in Asia as well. Okay. Uh, it manufactures 35% of its revenue. It distributes 65%. That's, that's the split. Um, it's got quite a complex matrix of currencies, but the bottom line is um, devaluation of sterling against the dollar is actually good for it. Okay. Um, and because it's got um, a base over in Italy, um, it's actually got quite strong uh, European sales as well. So no, the, the directors there are really happy. Another one of interest is AB Dynamics. They do testing equipment for tracks. So they've done deals with um, Formula One companies like Williams. Um, so crash dummies, things like that. But they, they do virtual simulators as well. So an automotive company like Nissan, before they actually launch the cars, want to actually see in virtual reality whether or not this thing's actually going to work under certain conditions. And that's what this company does. So it's got contracts with major automotive automotive manufacturers and 96%, this is a UK company based in the Midlands, 96% of sales are actually overseas and demand from the automotive sector is great at the moment. So it's 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 laughing and those shares are motoring. That's Nice pun. Well, I mean, obviously the currency is driving it up recently, but um, um, but but he can't he can't help himself. But, but what, this, this was his habit when he was company's editor, Ian. I think you need to learn a trick or two here. But 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 but, but with, with earnings expected to uh, grow by about twenty percent um, next year, um, and the shares trading at thirteen times forward earnings, I, I think there's some fuel left in the tank. Oh. Grown. Okay, um, keep going. Um, another another company on my my watch list, which is of interest, is um, Sumero Enterprises. Uh, Alex Newman actually tipped this one earlier this year as well, and um, they do concrete leveling equipment for the um, U.S. market. In particular, seventy eight percent of sales are actually in the U.S. I've heard America. the market's a bit flat. That's the joke. Sorry. You need some practice. It's flat. It's flat in places, but it's it's a very solid performer. Uh, and uh, and the the the, be- the benefit here is because seventy eight percent of sales are from the U.S. market and the non residential construction market, which is booming in the states. This company's going gangbusters, and given the sterling dollar rates collapse from one dollar forty seven at the start of the year to one dollar twenty seven right now, those dollar earnings are worth 15 18% more to that company now than they were 
eight, nine months ago, and this company can be bought for eight times earnings, offering a decent dividend yield, cash in the bank. Yeah, the share price is going to run and run. One more, Burford. We talked Burford earlier because that's actually the magazine this week uh, in our tip section. It's, it's, a, it's a great company. They, um, they had two um, bond issues on the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, these are, these are the uh, all bonds, all of it for retail bonds. These are big bonds that unusually retail investors can actually buy. They, they can, and they've done really well with uh, Burford. So they, they had one a few years ago, and they're, they're trading above par for that bond, 6% plus yield. They had another one back in um, April, May time, raised 100 million sterling, 6.125%. I think it's trading above par still. The company is really sensible. It, it backs um, litigation cases in North America and it transferred the £100 million from that bond issue in the UK into US dollars before the EU referendum. It got $1.55, I think, to the pound. Good it, luck or good timing? Or, you know, very, did they call it? Or? Very, very astute management, I'd, I'd say. But, um, but the other thing is that the litigation cases they back... I've got a high percentage success rate. The return on capital for completed cases is something like 70%, I think. How do you go... We were talking about Burford the other day in terms of how you go about valuing it, whether you value it on a price-to-earnings basis or whether you look at it on a book value basis, i.e. the value of the cases. You've got to value it on a price-to-earnings basis because they use very conservative assumptions in their valuation of the cases. They, the, the reason they make bumper profits when these cases actually... When, when some cases are won is because the probability that they actually factor into the valuation in the first place is lower than it should be. So then the issue I suppose that you have is that the price to earnings um, in terms of the predicted um, price to earnings ratio will be affected by the lumpiness of the cases and when they come through and the predictability of that. But no that's the great thing because they raised a bond issue a few years ago been investing that money, it's all invested that sum and they've been making these huge capital returns from the cases that they invested the money in. No, no, they're not only recycling that money, but they're recycling the money that they raised in the bond issue in the UK five months ago um, into new cases. So you'll have a constant stream of cases coming on stream over the next few years to actually underpin those earnings forecasts. Yeah, and, and I suppose what's interesting more widely is there is a bit of structural shift in terms of how litigation is financed, isn't there, within, uh, well, I suppose within the UK, the European context as well, moving more down the kind of US model. So do you see that as being beneficial for Burford? Oh, it's, it's very beneficial because the, the European market and the UK market specifically, we're not even touching the surface there. And, and again, the sterling dollar exchange rates it not only benefits the earnings of Burford, which are dollar earnings, but it uses a significant amount of expenses are actually in sterling uh, from UK lawyers. Um, so it's benefiting both ways. But no, I'm totally with you. Um, Burford, we've seen, for example, British Telecom BT have actually signed up for this, this type of um, litigation service, one of the first companies in Britain to do so. That was earlier this year. And I, I can just see other corporates actually following this to actually get an outside party to fund their litigation in exchange for returning part of the proceeds if the litigation is successful. Yeah. Um, it's a huge market to be in. And they're, well, yeah. they're, they're, they're yeah. a world leader and they're a British company. Yeah, there's another one, isn't there? Juridica, which uh, we've looked at quite a few times. I it's not had such a good run. Well, I, I include it in the bargain share portfolio. And what you've got to consider is in February the share price is 41 pence it's actually paid out 40 pence a share of dividends this year so anyone that actually bought in in February is in for a penny 
when the shares are now 18 pence in the market to sell. Um, so in terms of the percentage change, it's about 40%. But anyone invested then, you've got all your money back and you've got a free ride on the company. Free ride. Um, which is you love nothing more than a free ride. It's not, it's not too shabby. <laughs> not it's a good. Juridic is a good example of where cases can go against them. They had a couple of cases was it last year or beginning of this year. Oh, so it was, sho- it was shocking last year. I mean, yeah. that's one of the reasons I actually um, advised buying the shares back in um, February because the the valuation being attributed to the company at the time implied that eighty one percent of cases remaining would go bad, and they'd only recover the money from nineteen percent of the cases. And I just thought, no, that's ridiculous for a company with cash on its balance sheet. Mm. Yeah, they, they've had write-downs over the summer, which is one reason why the share price has pulled back. You know, the, re- the return earlier this year was fantastic. It was something like 80%, and it's now only 40%. But it's still, you know, it's 40% since February, which is which is good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and essentially exposed to the same the same kind of trends that, that Burford is. It's, it's not in the same league as Burford and never was going to be. No, I mean, Burford's a quality operator. Yeah, and so you said the shares have tripled since you uh, you first suggested buying them. Yes, I put the readers in back in June last year at £1.46. They're about £4.10 at the moment. Amazing. And they've had dividends as well. And we think there's, there's further to go. I, I think there is. I mean, they're trading on 12 times forward earnings. There's a decent dividend. They've got all this cash from the bond issue and from recycling profits, that these bumper profits they've been making. So... Um, and also the sterling dollar exchange rates, they, they've got the benefit from that as well. So it's, it's all positive. Yeah. Well, there you go. Every cloud has a silver lining. And the silver lining of the plunging pound is that there's a lot of companies on the UK market that are going to do all right. As I, actually, there's one other that could I just quickly add Oh, this? go on then. If you'd like to check in for a comfortable stay at a hotel, easy hotels could be it. They've just raised £38 million from institutional investors to scale up, ramp up their uh, expansion programme. This is Stelios, is it? Um, Stelios owns part of it, but he's um, he's a silent investor in effect. Right. Really? That's unusual for Stelios. <laughs> well, it's, it's very unusual for him. But, um, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, he's, he's, got, he's got his shareholding, but it's diminished because this £38 million worth mm. of capital raise that's uh, just come on board. The, the point here is that with Sterling going from €1.35 to €1.14, since the start of this year, and 147 against the dollar to 127 against the dollar, there'll be lots of people who'll be thinking, mm, not sure about a foreign holiday next year, but they clearly still want a holiday. And this hotel offers in various locations, and it's, it's increasing number of locations across Europe and the UK, um, very cheap accommodation. So I, I can see it being a beneficiary, not only of staycation, but also of Europeans and Americans coming to Britain who want to take advantage of cheap budget accommodation. Yeah. As, as, e- as EasyJet suffers, Easy Hotel will prosper, because obviously we've had the profit warning from EasyJet today. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Which Stelius obviously still is major shareholder in. Absolutely. Well, if you want to if you want to stay in a small orange room in central London, then... Uh Easy hotels is the place to go. And it's cheap. And it's cheap. Indeed. Um, let's uh, quickly touch on a couple of results in. Not as many this week, thank goodness. Uh, but, I mean, we talk, we've talked Tesco. That's probably, yeah, Tesco's the major one. Apart from that, um, Vinales is quite interesting. Um, That's a, that share price graph is ugly. Yeah, it's ugly. They've uh, had a couple of road bumps, uh, shall we say. And uh, Tuzista, which is their first homegrown drug, which is a once-a-day flu treatment, 
its sales has been worse than expected in the US. Um, so, and it's slightly concerning that they're going to invest in it more uh, to bring up the sales. But basically, they're going to um, lower the price for non-insured users in the US in a bid to kind of gain market share there. So that doesn't look great, but at least they're addressing it. Um, and they had problems with the supplier of their once uh, daily antibiotic moxa tag, and uh, the supplier of that went bust. So a couple of uh, road bumps there. Um, but you can read why we're kind of uh, keeping the faith in terms of um, the company and those products. You know, the, basically the revenue from those com- uh, from those products still rising over the short to medium term. There's this funny uh, business, Tiziana, which is one of my favourite odd little uh, companies, uh, which uh, raised um, a load of money. Um, it started developing a, a couple of main drugs, um, but this year it focused on uh, buying some D- the DNA or buy a bank containing the DNA of the residents of a Sardinian province. Yes, uh, can which you it, pronounce it? In if you can pronounce that, I'll buy your pint. Ogliastra. Well, we check that later. Oh, I've got no I idea. I think if my that's pint right. might be safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I've, laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's Stephen Wilmot when you need him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's actually quite interesting what they've done there, um, but it doesn't look like uh, that company's going to be uh, making much money in the short term. So, at but the what end they're trying of, to do is they're trying to find out these, these, the secret the to highest, eternal life. The secret to eternal life. This is the highest proportion of cent- centurions. Centenarians, Centenari- not not Roman uh, not centurions, soldiers. Centenarians <laughs> of any place in Europe. They probably had a lot of Roman centurions at they one point. Have, Maybe there's a secret to eternal life. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they are trying to. Uh, they're looking into that. So it's kind of shoot the lights out stuff. But it, it's an interesting little company. Okay. There's been a few. I mean, it's the end of the results season, so we've had a few of the oddball. My favourite Revolution bars. Can't beat a nice bit of a uh, bit of a bit of a uh, rum. Yeah, exactly right. It hasn't um, done brilliantly on the market of late, although there does seem to have been a bit of sell-off among some of the uh, kind of discretionary spending stocks at the pubs. Um, but uh, th- they also said that there was one acquisition of four bars that they planned to make. They decided not to in the wake of the referendum vote, which was quite interesting because we talk a lot about referendum being an excuse, uh, but they obviously thought the uncertainty at that point meant they couldn't enter into that acquisition. Seems um, quite sensible to me. Um Immediately post-referendum. Yeah. Uh, I look at these numbers, they look very good. Uh, I look at the business model, it looks very good. Yeah, I, it's, it's not, it's not a, just a, any old pub chain. It's it's doing something differently. It's able to, to keep prices high and volumes high. Yeah, it, we scratched our heads a little bit this week trying to work out why the share price has fallen so much in Revolution Bars. It does look to be a wider kind of sector sell-off. Mm. Um, perhaps concerns about consumer spending, but then we know from the last financial crisis that some of the discretionary stocks actually did quite well through that period. So uh, it might be that just there's market sentiment towards the sector or it might be concerns that they haven't made the acquisitions expected yes indeed anyway there you go very interesting okay well we are running out of time so uh thank you Ian. thank you simon for your uh, for your very useful contributions today there is loads in the magazine this week uh, i think we've already alluded to the fact that we have another um share pad uh, piece this week this time we're looking at uh consumer goods companies some of the large ones that the people are referring to lately as bond proxies so the likes of unilever the uh not diageo in this case uh wreck it bank is uh, and a couple of americans colgate palmolive and Procter & Gamble shares with very reliable earnings streams from the sale of branded products that enable them to, to pay pretty pretty nice dividends. Uh, and we're looking at whether they really are uh, a safe haven for your money uh, when you're not getting decent returns on bonds. 
Interesting sex focus on gyms. I know nothing about gyms. I never go to gyms. What I do remember about gyms, and you'll probably remember this, Simon, is there used to be a few of them listed, and they didn't go so well. There was a state in the late 90s, early 2000s, and things like Fitness First, massive company, mm. um, LA Fitness. Yeah, um, I remember it well. And they, they were all bought out by private equity. and um, a, For a song as well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And um, from what I gather, things like Fitness First are now being divvied up and um, to various other operators. So I think it's Dave Whelan that owns a big chunk of Fitness First. Old uh, JJB Sports, he, Dave Whelan. He does, he's, he's bought, I think, 78 gyms or fitness centres and he's selling off some of them. But um, So they're coming back anyway. The listed, listed gyms are reappearing, perhaps slightly different models, sort of budget gyms. So uh, Bradley's had a look to see whether whether they're going to suffer the same fate again as, uh, as people realise that they don't go to the gym as much as they actually should do and that therefore it's not worth paying for their expensive <laughs> membership. Um, uh, the usual uh, stock swings from algae, lots and lots in the comments section, lots in the personal finance and funds section as per usual, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Lots of tip updates, another 50 objects. We've got a great cover feature from our uh, American contributor, uh, Todd Wenning. Uh, it's the uh, the return of the Super Size series uh, and he's looking at companies often small companies with with what he calls economic moats very defensible market positions uh, and he's turned his attention to europe this time i mean these are extraordinary companies that i've never heard of involved in faroe island salmon production barrel making for the wine and whiskey industries and car washing <laughs> who would have thought that supersized profits could come from such humble origins that's like a great night out indeed yeah it does actually <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, thank you, Ian. Thank you, uh, thank you, Simon. Thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine, Supersize Returns Europe, £4.70, all good news agents. Obviously, subscribe if you uh, would prefer to take a more long-term relationship with the Investors Chronicle. Thank you very much, and uh, speak to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.